Hi, I'm Mark Kate. Welcome to episode 41 of Why We Listen. This is a live episode recently recorded in Los Angeles. I think the introductions at the event itself can probably set up this podcast sufficiently, so I don't need to say too much here other than to reinforce my gratitude to those who made it possible. Thanks to Jan Novak, Geneva Skeen, and especially Robert Crouch from Volume. Thanks to Nayland Blake, my guest, for being such a, a generous conversationalist and giving me and my audience uh, such thoughtful responses. And thanks to Jamila James and everyone at ICALA and Steve Hirsch of Cooper Design Space. A quick plug, I am going to be moderating a panel discussion as part of the Dong Bukla Memorial Concerts. It's a festival happening this weekend to pay tribute to Bukla's legacy in the history of electronic music. It's uh, this Sunday, April 23rd, and I'll be leading a panel featuring Tom Oberheim, Dave Smith, Roger Lynn, Jessica Rylin, and Keith McMillan, just sort of, you know, five powerhouses of uh, synthesis and instrument design. And that's going to be this, uh, this Sunday at 3 p.m. at Gray Area in San Francisco. For this episode, my guest, Nalen Blake, who is an artist based in New York, we listened to Life on the Inside from Dr. Selevi's Magic Theater, and that is sung by Amy Taubin. We listened to Oh Bondage Up Yours, the single version by X-Ray Specs, and Namesake by Tunde Olaniran, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm afraid we started recording the evening just a few seconds into Jamila's introduction, so let's just fade into that moment right about now of the Institute of Contemporary Art Los Angeles, and I want to thank everyone for coming tonight for this very special edition of Why We Listen with the artist Nalen Blake. I want to first thank Steve Hirsch for his generosity in lending us this space this evening, and I also want to thank Mark Kate of Volume, Robert Crouch, and of course Nalen Blake, who will be the subject of a major exhibition at the ICA in 2019. Uh, the ICA is opening this fall in September down in downtown Los Angeles on 7th Street to stay in touch with us and to keep abreast of what we're doing and upcoming events. You can sign up for our mailing list, which is in the back with the beer and pretzels. And you can also follow us on social media at the ICA LA and also visit our website, which is theicala.org. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Robert Crouch to introduce the evening and our respondents. Thank you. Hi. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Jamila. I'm Robert Crouch. I'm uh, one of the founding members of Volume. We are a curatorial collective comprised of artists, academics, curators, and writers that are really interested in exploring the intersection of music, Experimental music, sound, and visual art. Um, we host events, exhibitions, and publications throughout Los Angeles and sometimes beyond. You can learn more about us at volume.la. Um, I first really want to extend my deepest thanks to the ICALA, um, Elsa Longhauser and her staff for being so gracious and accommodating to us. Um, I particularly want to thank um, Asuka Hisa, who just completely brought this wonderful event together um, and was absolutely wonderful to work with. So thank you, and if you could all just give everybody, <laughs> give them a, a round of applause, thank you. 
So um, this is a really special moment for me, um, personally and professionally. Um, I will, uh, with full disclosure, um, Mark, Kate, Nayland, and I are all friends. Um, we met, I did the math, almost 25 years ago. Um, we've known each other for a while. Um, Mark and I were students um, of Nayland's back in San Francisco, and that's part of what prompted this whole thing. Um, you know, many, we all know Nayland as an artist. He's a, he's a phenomenal artist and incredibly important artist to me as well as to many people. Art historically, I think, will come to really understand the importance of the work that he's done. One of the other things that kind of precede him is that he has a fantastic reputation as an arts educator. And so I've met other students of Nayland's, and as soon as we find out where we both study with Nayland, there's this kind of knowledge that we share, and there's almost this instant bond. And it's a really special thing. But I really, and, and that's a really big part of his practice, and it is very generous and very special, but it's also something that unless you follow that path, unless you actually work with him, the public doesn't really understand the depth of that process and what he brings to a group of young artists. So in many ways, this event we're doing is kind of an extension of that. When we would all have conversations as student teacher or as friends, the ways in which music would figure into his approach to pedagogy was always very, uh, it was always very present, very palpable. You know, we would do things that always have to do with music, pop culture in some way, but integrated in a very meaningful way. Like, how do these things how do, how do we produce our own subjectivities through our embrace of these different kinds of things that are out in the world? And how does that, uh, how, do, how do how we then communicate that through art or in other ways? So that's always something that has played a big important part in my life, both as an artist as well as a curator. And that's one of the things that prompted me to start Volume in the first place is looking at that really kind of complete integration of different kinds of uh, art-making practices um, and seeing how they, those things can function together. A few years ago, Mark Kate started this a wonderful podcast called Why We Listen, um, and it's just three beautiful words, why we listen, where he would invite um, an, an artist or thinker or writer or musician to bring three pieces of music, and they would just sit and listen and talk. And those conversations would reveal so much about how those artifacts shape our understanding of the world. And oftentimes those conversations would then spring into much larger conversations about the world around us and how we interact and issues of power and representation and so forth. I'll let Mark talk a little bit more about that um, when he comes on board. But we had always talked about wanting to do Why We Listen as a live event. So Nayland happened to be coming to town and Mark was close by and we just felt this was a good time to do it. Um, so I'm really happy this is, the first, this is the first time that Why We Listen is becoming a live event. So I'm really glad you could all be here to share that. And the ICA was so gracious as to not only open themselves just, but find a new space for us as well. So I would like to bring out Mark and Nayland and let them take it from there. Thanks for coming, everybody. Thank you so much for that introduction, Robert, and thanks to ICA, Jamila, uh, Volume, and Nalen. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Robert, for making me cry at the beginning of the event. <laughs> so again, Los Angeles Weep Fest continues. <laughs> um, I'd, uh, I, I just also want to say thank you 
to Jamila, thank you for everyone um, uh, at um, at LAICA, and uh, thanks. I, I, I just want to say, I mean, that was so lovely what you said, Robert, and um, I think tonight we'll also sort of touch on some of those themes, but I think the the stuff that I do, I really learned it from other people. And one of the things that's wonderful about tonight is seeing folks who I feel were also my instructors in that culture of artistic um, uh, production and value and understanding what the life of an artist would be. And so, Joy, it's wonderful to see you here and Connie and people who... Um, you know, I feel like we're part of a kind of cultural legacy and it's really wonderful to be doing this at a time when um, we need to show up for each other for those moments of cultural legacy more than ever before. Um, and so it's great to, it's, I'm, I'm really honored to be here and lovely, you know, it's lovely to be part of that trajectory. So, so there. Anyway. It's great. <laughs> So um, I don't know if I can actually add anything to what Robert said about the podcast, Why We Listen. Um, it really did kind of, I feel, birth somehow actually from the classes that Robert and I and some other people in this audience took with Nayland, um, where it was um, really about investigating our relationship to these, to these practices, to these objects, even as sound. And I was just sort of at a place where I thought about my relationship to music as a musician and as a consumer and knowing often, well, I know what my relationship to these things are, but I don't really know what other people's relationships to music are and really wanting to understand. I mean, it is called Why We Listen and it really is that simple. Um, What is it that music does to each of us very subjectively and even different kinds of music relative to even just the same person, you know, how does this music function for me? How does that music function for me? Oftentimes it's nostalgic or it's functional or whatever. Um, And it's been a real pleasure to talk with people about those differences. And actually the place I would love to start is kind of the intersection of what Robert said and what you just said, which is, um, I would love to ask you to maybe talk a bit about, because I was in your class and you would give these assignments and they often revolved around pieces of music or pop cultural references within music, mm-hmm. but I never really got to ask you like how you came to that. I guess, I mean, not to sound highfalutin, but it, it's, um, I think there is a tendency in art schools for people to be encouraged to shed everything that they normally value in the outside world. And so in, I mean, the class that you guys were in was like a perform. it was like a new genre performance class. And there was this weird notion that it's like the only way, the only things that you could learn about that were encapsulated in other like art performances. And people would have such a ponderous relationship to the historical reality of those things that for me using a pop single, like I think one of the assignments maybe for your class was um, the Art Institute is right up the hill from uh, Tower Records and so I would go and buy like 12 copies of whatever was the number one single. On Kasingle. 
Yeah, that, yes, Anka single that time around, yes. Whatever was like the number one single in the U.S. that week and bring it in, and that was what everybody got as raw material to make work from. And it was partially that thing of like, you know, even if you hate something, you can make something out of it. You can learn something from it. There's a way to engage with it that isn't so deadly serious. And I guess for myself in my own work, it's always, it, it, it is often the things that are happening in other mediums that are the most resonant for me and the most connecting for me and the most, um, uh, that sort of show me the way forward. So that's, that's a big part of why I would bring that stuff in. Now, so it seems like you're saying almost if you were taking the number one single uh, that it's almost a little bit out of your hands. So perhaps in your practice, you have a very resonant connection with very specific kinds of music mm-hmm. and certain songs, certain artists. But for class, it was a little bit of a randomizer or something like that. Yeah, because... Um, oh, well, I can tell you... I don't know how much time we have for digression. I can tell you a ter- sort of terrible story. Go. Okay. Um, so uh, I, went, I did my undergraduate work at Bard College... Um, and in my, uh, at the end of my third year there, a person by the name Jerry Perlberg and myself founded um, Bard's first Gay and Lesbian Alliance. So this is like 1981. And we were able to convince Bard's only out faculty member to teach a gay and lesbian culture and history course. So the first half of the course was gay and lesbian history. He was a historian, so that was so he had that material and could teach it. The second half was the culture half. Um, halfway through the culture half, he taught us. He had us read the novel *The Front Runner*, which was a best-selling novel about a gay track star, written by a woman by the name of Patricia Nell Warren. The book is, uh, the word we would use today is problematic. Uh, It is very much a novel of its time. And so we had this assignment to all read this book, and then the next week we come in, and he's like going to teach us this book, and we were all like, this was horrible. This was like the most like homophobic, This this is the worst thing. And he just like deflated and died. And it was because this book was incredibly important to him and meant so much to him. And here he was. He was like the only out faculty member. And finally he had, uh, he had, finally he had out students. And they were going to actually validate this thing that meant so much to him. And they didn't. And so I guess one of the lessons that I took from that is that in the class it shouldn't be about my taste. It should be about how do you generate material? How do you, as your practice, like take something outside of you? And I'm a big fan of like quantifiable assignments. So these days, like I do a drawing every day and I give myself that assignment and it doesn't have to be a good drawing. And many days it's a really crappy drawing. But at least it's like as I do that every day, there's a whole thing that comes from that. So it being the number one single in America 
meant that I wasn't giving you all my favorite song to do something with so that right. then you yeah. could have a whole emotional relationship with it. It was just like, this is the thing that happens to be number one in America. Yeah. Now, as opposed to the way it music inserts its way into your pedagogical practice, <laughs> how about your studio practice? I mean, I feel like, you know, music is also very resonant as a part of, and, and not in a in a cliched way, not in a way that I find is very typical of, of a lot of art of the mm -hmm. last 20, 30 years. Um, but how do you feel that it plays in? Um, I mean, you know, of course I listen to stuff while I work, but I also, um, you know, there are certain bands or albums that become sort of talismanic for me in the midst of working, and, and I've derived, like, you know, I... I done shows where the names of all of the pieces are from are like album tracks you know as a way of sort of figuring out can you give us some examples of how that's happened in the past uh oh gosh i mean early on in like 87 i think there was something named like uh, it was like a velvet underground album and sort of one song for each one of those um i did a show at matthew marks called um, the Black White album, and the the pieces were either named for Prince's uh, for tracks on Prince's Black album, or um, songs from the Beatles' White album. Um, so before Danger Mouse's Gray album, <laughs> before yes, <laughs> you were there first. I was there first. Do you still sort of work that way, or did, like do you still sort of brazenly take material out of out of? pop culture in that way and, and apply it to your work? Uh, you know, there's, there's stuff that emerges in the drawings, yes. But I would say that the imagery in the work these days is very much derived from cartoons and cartooning. And so I guess a childhood growing up listening to or watching, um, you know, Bugs Bunny cartoons has given me an affinity for a certain type of like fence that's made of like boards that are all sort of tacked up together or like recently the drawings have all these mouse holes in them or knot holes and you know it's like these things that only show up in in cartoon backgrounds right yeah so it's stuff like that so maybe let's get specific and listen to um Actually, I should, yeah, as Robert said, the way I tend to format the uh, podcast, and we're going to do that this evening, is we're going to listen to a song collectively, silently, together, and um, then we're going to talk about it. And mm -hmm. um, let's just listen to this first one. And I tend to close my eyes during them, yeah. so...
So when I prepare for these conversations, uh, about half the time I don't want to know what the music is, just so I can be surprised and and just like discover mm-hmm. in real time what's going on. Uh, but sometimes I like to be prepared and and want to know in advance so I can do some research. And for this one, that I did want to, and I tried to learn as much as I could about that song. And mm-hmm. the more I read and discovered about it, the less I understood anything about it like it just <laughs> just the more i discovered the less i i, I got i feel like you're really gonna have to unpack this one <laughs> for me well okay so th- this was not the number one hit in america ever um this is a a, a song it's in fact the finale from a musical called dr Selavy's magic theater um that was a hit off-Broadway in 1972. And the reason why I picked it is that um, I saw this show 
when I was 12 years old. And it was an off-Broadway hit directed by Richard Foreman, who is a theater artist who I think almost more than anyone else has structured the way I've thought about making work, both through his plays and his writing. So 12 years old, like going, I was part of like a youth group at the Y and we would go and do cultural stuff. It was like an advanced form of babysitting, obviously for our parents. And so here was this show that was like this big hit and they took us to see it. And the show is in the sort of trajectory of like Marat Saad or uh, things like that. So it is a, a play where the narrative such as it is, is that a guy comes to um, Dr. Selavi's asylum to take this cure, to be sort of cured. And kind of, and, and what happens over the sort of five days that the play progresses is that he's subjected to various kinds of abuse. And the play is kind of a parody of contemporary capitalist culture. And uh, he's kind of like broken down. And, the, and it's sort of like this whole thing between like who's mad and who's sane and the doctors are these sort of evil authority figures. Um, but it's very disjunct. And so watching it, I had seen, like up to that point, I'd seen You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. And I'd seen Hair. And I'd seen, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar. And the, those were like sort of the Broadway shows that I saw. And seeing this show and the way that it was structured had this deep resonance with me. And I picked this image um, to show this is sort of what happens at the climax of the play is that the hero has sort of been like stripped down and appears with this hat on and you can't see because it's not a color photograph but so the hat is this weird sort of like skull cap with these kind of like turd like appendages that hang down and his appearance at that moment was sort of humiliate like it was like the character was kind of being humiliated and the affect was very, very strange. And there was a kind of amazing charge for me in that moment where I realized like, wait, you could be like an actor on a stage and be doing this thing that seems like incredibly revealing and uncomfortable and weird and kind of humiliating. There's something kind of sexy about it, but there's also something kind of just repulsive about it. And being in that moment and thinking like theater, which up to that point I had experienced as like this general like feel-good emotional thing, that it could also be about this completely odd, revealing, compelling thing. So what, what do you think it was about y- y- Tween Nayland that was like ready for something so totally not technical or dreamboat? I mean, coat. Dare, dare I say queerness? I mean, it, it, oh. it, it, it is a kind of image of queerness, of being kind of revealed as strange and not fitting in and not glamorous that has a, a really interesting charge to it. And I love that song. So years later, I found the soundtrack album. In fact, after I had moved to San Francisco, I found like in some thrift store, I found like the soundtrack album and, and bought it and started listening to it. 
and I actually really love it like as a as like a musical soundtrack there's some great stuff about it um but I love that song there's actually there's three vocalists in the song so the first is Amy Taubin who is a a writer for the Village Voice and she's the person who starts out and sort of finishes up and I love how her voice is really unprofessional and kind of like you know quavering and grainy and then the second person who like once it gets all rock like is and I'm and suddenly I'm blanking on her name do you did you remember in your no. research no uh I want to say Jessica something she is the off-broadway actress who went on to star in Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise she was in a bunch of Woody Allen films um, so she actually had a kind of interesting sort of theater New York actress career. And then the, and then the person who's doing all this sort of vocalizations, the sort of Yoko Ono-ish, like... Um, sort of scatty almost. Yeah. Call and response. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's that in there too. And the lyric, I tend to be a lyric person, right? So the lyrics are all like, you know, life on the outside looks good when you're on the inside and you're looking out and, and flipping all of that back and forth and, like, sort of ending up with, like, life on the bright side looking good when you're on the dark side looking bright and or looking light. And so there's a thing in there also about a kind of biracial identity. I think that one of the things that was just compelling to me about that theatrical moment was this ambivalence, you know, that none of it was right one way or another. So, yeah, that's the thing. Like, when I was trying to think about, like, what I would bring to this, I went through, like, oh, what's the stuff that I listen to in my studio all the time? And I was thinking, oh, I'll bring Velvet Underground. You know, I mean, it's these things that are, like, sort of constants with me. But then it seemed like, no, this is actually something that in a very weird way showed me the way I could be a type of artist that was deeper than anything else I had seen at the time, you know? Yeah, I mean, it strikes me like when people have that one song that turned them into a goth, but this is so much more complex, you know? <laughs> yeah. So did you go like full musical theater in high school? No, I was not... Um... No, by the time I got so to high school... this was not inspiring in that way. No, no, no. Okay. And in fact, I, it was the opposite. Like, I, I was obsessed with Richard Foreman's plays and saw, like, every one of them for years. And believe me, this was the most accessible of, of any of them. Although he did do a, an, a production, something else that I was thinking that I might bring. He, did a, he directed a production of Three Penny Opera that had um, Raul Julia and Ellen Green in it and that is an amazing amazing production you, you saw yeah i saw it cool. multiple times um and and that soundtrack is to my mind it's the best translation of the brecht and it is my favorite three penny out of any of them but anyway no it kind of pointed me in the direction of weird difficult art so i started going to like you know, with friends, we would go to, like, anthology film archives, or I was talking with Jamila about this, like, listening to, like, Art Ensemble of Chicago records, and things like, you know, we, 
it was that sort of clarion call to me, not of musical theater, but of like this whole other thing. Of, of a certain kind of avant-garde that was still alive and well in New yeah. York City at the yeah. time, yeah. Yeah, and that was very much about not winning. Like, I think that was the thing that was kind of compelling about it. Ultimately, it's like, this was not about someone triumphing. Like, at the end of the play, he's like, it's very, very ambivalent. And this song is, like, is weirdly ambivalent. It is not, like, if you think that's the last number in the show... That's not like send everybody out with like a song no. in their heart. It's yeah. like, <laughs> and the thing that's weird about the soundtrack. I mean, I don't know if you investigated this, but I tried. Yeah. Well, James Taylor recorded a version of this yeah. that is horrible. <laughs> I mean, when you buy the album digitally now, you can get it on Amazon and stuff. It's it, it's added as a kind of bonus track, and and I mean. You know, it's interesting to see how somebody with absolutely no sense of ambivalence can, like... Is that how you feel about James Taylor in general, or or are you protecting your territory here? Uh, I got no beef with Sweet Baby James. I mean, I just, you know, but but I feel like his... It's it's not in his vocabulary. That's fair. To really come up with what might be compelling about that song. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's in a certain way a really good transition to what's next. Oh, okay. Shall we? All right. I'm curious. I mean, oh, okay, I wait, yeah. I want to hear a bit from you though. Oh. Like, okay, so you get this thing yeah. in the mail. Yeah. What were you like? Well, I because I went, I went through yeah. the whole thing about it's important to me, don't trample it. But I, but, but we're both big grown-ups. Okay. So. No, I, honestly, I don't. I, I, I don't connect to musicals so mm-hmm. well, and so um, an obscure musical that then I was reading like it was important because of this person's relationship to this, and they were really inspired by this, and all these all the cross-pollination that was happening to make that moment happen is entirely lost on me. Right. Um, and so I genuinely, I, I feel like I can't, eh, can't is the wrong word, I don't appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really hoping that like you could make me get it and it would open up and mm-hmm. I would have this new appreciation for it and be yeah. excited to go track down this soundtrack, but I yeah. don't know. It's, an, uh, it's a kind of ugly, ambivalent thing. And, but, and it also has that crazy like 60s, I mean, it's 72, but it's like that idea, that Broadway musical idea of what rock yeah. is supposed to be. Yeah. Like that guitar solo. Uh. I mean, that, that is, and, but that's hilarious. And I remember who the second singer is. It's Jessica Harper. Oh, she was in like Argento films. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, that's what I mean. She had like this whole other career. But the songs that she sings in De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, where she... I own the shirt that she auditions in that movie of. Oh, my God. Anyway, whatever. Well, so, but, but, so that's, she's doing exactly that thing yeah. in, in that moment in the song. Right. You know, when she's... Life on the inside. <laughs> you know, it's just like, what is that? But I love the fact that it's it's an awkward, ugly thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. I I uh, I tried. Yeah. That's but, all but, right. But that's all, like all that history is really amazing for sure. Yeah. It's that is the deep. That's a deep cut. It's a it's a Truly. very very deep cut. Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard, but I think. 
So there's the hit. Yeah. <laughs> so did you did you first hear that song like when it came out? This was, I think, in the if not the first batch of punk singles that I ever bought in the second batch. And I I still have my like picture sleeve somewhere, you know. Yeah. So yeah, it was I I yes as soon as they had been imported into the U.S. So I don't know how, how much longer it was after that had come out. But I think it was pretty close, because this was yeah. 77. Seven. So yeah, it would have been in that year. Yeah. So how, when, when you were getting this, these like stacks of singles, of, and you're saying like a bunch of punk singles, like yeah, yeah. so Buzzcock, Sex Pistols, whatever, what, mm-hmm. what was it about this one in particular that uh, made it, stand out for you if it did at the time. Did it uh-huh. at the time? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, so just to say, like, about that, I bought this at Bleecker Bob's record store in New York on Bleecker Street, and one of the first places to be selling both domestic punk singles and importing singles. 
and they had a big wall of seven inches behind like the register, right? And so the thing about that time was like you could go to the record store and just like point at stuff that looked good and fucked up and odds were that you got like a high percentage of things that were kind of great but it was but I was like picking blind I didn't know anything about that scene at all but I loved the cover and then as I got to know a little bit more about the band I was like I loved them and I loved polystyrene and how, how much information was really available to you at that time about these, these UK bands? You could see a little bit in some music magazines. Um, and, and, like, The Voice would do some reporting on stuff, and there would be, like, little capsule reviews of singles, and stuff would be around, but not a whole lot. And so a certain amount of it was projection. But the thing that keeps me coming back to this song... And this particular single out of all them, and, and this is the single version, this isn't the album version, is, again, it's one of these things where so many parts of it are wrong. And it is probably my favorite rock and roll saxophone ever. <laughs> you know? At the same time as you're like, stop playing that fucking saxophone. Laura Logic, please. <laughs> like, But... You know, it's like the rhythm section is like rushing through things. It's like she's sort of there and can keep up, sort of not. But I also love the fact, and saying as I'm sort of a lyric person, you know, I love the fact that it was taking, again, this kind of explicit sexual thing and throwing it back in one's face and sort of claiming an identity around, you know, like, I want to be a victim to you all. Like, that was, again, perhaps a thing that linked it to that earlier theatrical moment that I was talking about. There was a part of early punk that was about embracing humiliation and was not about, like, kind of triumphant cool, you know? That's why I sort of, I always hated The Clash. Like, I hate The Clash. I think they're a terrible band. Um, uh, too, too forward and earnest? Too... They, it's what? like they believe their own press. Articulate that. <laughs> they, it's, it's like they believe, it's like, the, I don't want to get too deep into The Clash, but, I, but it's like they, they believe their own press, and as time has gone by, I'm like, you know, White Riot, fuck you. You know, like, like this thing about like, oh, you know, black people have a lot of problems, you know, white people go to school where the teacher does everything. Ugh. It's like, no, tough luck, you fucking white guys from Britain. It's like, that is, it's not that simple, you know? Your riot isn't going to help everybody. And like to have polystyrene, who is like mixed race, you know, woman, not like a sex, you know, not a sex kitten, like, uh, you know, awkward, hybridized, and, and yet sort of joyous and revolted at the same time is to me such a richer thing to think about than the kind of like, okay, now we're going to, you know, we're naming our album Sandinista. 
Like, <laughs> that's how cool we are. Yeah, X-ray specs definitely embodies something that is really hard to to locate that she's at once her vocals are incredibly exhilarating and alarming and kind of funny and kind yeah. of out of control but kind of precision and the lyrics are yeah. also like they're pretty funny and they're parodic but they're also like she's she's saying something that half the half the lyrics are actually very true and very raw and very real yeah. and half of it's kind of taking taking the piss yeah you know? but it is also like okay let's sit let's like be a person of color and sing about being a slave, you know? Um, and, and, you know, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, oh, bondage, up yours. It's like both the desire for that and the, and the rejection of that at the same time. I think it's also interesting that, um, you know, this was in a context where, like, Malcolm McLaren had his sex shop and bondage gear was making its yeah. way into punk aesthetics and... This song was sort of having none of it before it even re- before people even really took it as uh, as a movement as a as a fashion movement. Yeah, yeah, and I think that you know she also, um, you know, one of the great things about punk at the time was it was it didn't have a formulated identity yet, and so people like there was this place where. It's like, okay, well, maybe this is actually what punk is, or maybe this is. And, and it was such a more elastic possibility, and I think that's something that's been consistent for me as a person who's, you know, mixed race and queer and, you know, in some ways gender, you know, ambivalent. That, that idea of, like, places where... Um, definitions are thrown into question historically through people's making art is the thing that's the most exciting to me, you know. And it is, it is a kind of revealing that is um, just, you know, seems thrilling. So yeah, and it's and it's like just like you know, kind of perfect rush of a single. It doesn't go on too long. It's got, it's, it's just got great stuff. We also feel like what came after it, like post-punk and everything that that container holds, I feel is so much in the lineage of this more than so much of what punk really became. Uh, mm-hmm. Because it got very, very homogenized, very, very much a single sound, a single identity so quickly. But post-punk really exploded all that and I think it comes more not sonically because this is post-punk was definitely about rejecting simple song structures Mm -hmm. in one one of its its ways and this song could not be simpler as far as structure this is like it's bubblegum pop structure Um, but everything else about it is wide open and that the way that it's played however is totally dense and is not about like you actually being able to find your way through any of it like that's like I mean it's not that's I I mean that's one of the things about pop is that it kind of holds your hand, you know, all the way through the song. So it's like you kind of know what's coming next one way or the other if it's a key change or something, and um, and this doesn't do that, you know. Yeah, it always it it um, I mean I wrote a bit about my experience of this song when I was asked to write something about um, uh, about Kathy Acker after her death, and there was a way that the 
experience of a kind of female identity um, in as expressed in this song had a real resonance for me with the way that that um, that Kathy was using a kind of female voice in her writing. How, how so? Like, can you can you say more about um, that? Uh, you know, unapologetic, repetitive, not blatant, but not, um, but not like it's for somebody else. And at the same time, narrating yourself as like pathetic and aggressive simultaneously. Sort of on a different line, how much do you find yourself going back to music like this or from this era in your life? How mm-hmm. much do you sort of like do nostalgic listening? Um, or is that like part of your studio practice even? Or Well, you know, years ago, I went through that thing that I think most of us have done where you start like scanning everything in to, that you've got on any sort of analog media into iTunes so you sort of got it like the like the dream was to like okay just get all this stuff on my hard drive, and um, and before it all like sort of vanished at one point, I would listen to basically my record collection on shuffle, yeah. And so it wasn't so much like oh I need to hear that song now, but it but I would be suddenly surprised by something that I had had for a long time that would come back forward. So I, there is certain stuff that I will play while I'm working in the studio that in a way I know so well, like the Velvets 1969 live album is an album that I've listened to so many times that it's like, it's like a white noise generator for me, you know? And I love songs on it. But it's like, I just play it, and it can be done, and then I'm like, oh, yeah, I listened to it. You could almost play it in your head yeah. anyway. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, and then occasionally you do have those songs that you sort of cathect to, and those can be, like, utterly independent of whether or not you think they're good. I mean, it's true for me at this point, the stuff that is immediately, like, plunges me into nostalgia is like Sun Ra. You know, like uh, Sunrise Records that I listened to in my teens. So they're still good. I mean, Sunrise fucking genius, and um, and again, like another amazingly inspirational figure. And there's, I mean, not to plug it, but recently the somebody released all the singles. This box set of like all of his singles, many of them self-released over the years, and the earliest one is this sort of spoken word thing that is amazing because it's because it's basically seems like him coming out. I mean it's like it's very much about like queerness and being strange and getting visited by this by this other figure and Really? Yeah. Far out. Oh. Yeah. Did did you know that about No. No. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is all news to me. Yeah, no, basically that's that is kind of the deal with Sun Ra. I mean, nobody has like actually laid it out, but people basically know that he was gay, and and a lot of the music is kind of about that and sort of narrating that and the sort of being from another place and being from another planet and another time and escaping outside of it is yeah, that explains a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it explains those spangly turbans. 
that he, that he had the band wear, which were awesome. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. Shall we go from nostalgia to moving forward in time? Yes. Yeah, yeah. See him flossing in the metal, the game's in a higher level, dimensions we in December. You see, we get them together. DIY friends, we swang it. Bangers, bangers, he's slaying. Show, on point, he's slaying. He wasn't always his Throwing water on me in the middle school restroom Only brown hair in my ninth grade play Thirteen walking in the streets of UK Now maybe there's a lesson I've been given Know some wisdom from the stories that I need to tell And everybody's hoping and scraping and wishing They could be something outside themselves If I can be me Then you can be yourself It's like we're never satisfied It's like we're never satisfied Right Got it locked with the namesake Won't stay the same, change like every day Got it locked with the namesake Won't stay the same, change like every day Peace never fit in a new dread he was given To weave a singular vision Could never be avaricious Instead of quiet ambitious No reason but to resist it I hated this competition So I'm not putting they space But try to dictate a life they not Living tea all been about that truth Spilling all black like a deer when shot Hit up no formula run this path that you're on We all gotta make our own living Cry out loud, don't stay Hit it, feel it, feel so good, ready Now maybe there's a lesson I've been given Know some wisdom from the stories that I need to tell and everybody's hoping and scraping and wishing they could be something outside themselves. If I can be me, then you can be yourself. Might not be easy. It's like we're never satisfied. My boundaries in the lower degree was healing When it was sorely needed Like Pakistan, I succeeded My living won't be repeated Never read for them tight roads My eyes are where the sky goes So rare like albinos Portraits resume my vitals Few and number like rhinos Reaching out for them high notes Study me like your Bible Cats fighting on like I'm lying on Now maybe there's a lesson I've been given Know some wisdom from the stories That I need to tell and everybody's hoping and scraping and wishing they could be something outside themselves. If I can be me, then you can be yourself. Might not be easy. It's like we're never satisfied. 
Where did you hear that for the first time? Um, I think I, I think I heard it once I got the record. I heard a podcast and somebody was talking about seeing. So this is Tunde Olinarian, who's based in, uh, I think from Flint, Michigan, originally, but now is mostly in Detroit. And I heard a podcast where someone was talking about going to one of his shows, and then there was a brief interview with him. And there were clips from other songs on the record, and I was like, okay, I gotta find out what the deal is with this. And I got the record and then heard this song. And it's like, this song moves me around the studio. I mean, I'm... The, um, okay. I have... I have it's it sort is, of what I was asking about earlier. <laughs> it, is, it is corny to say that something gives you life. But this gives me much life. And I'm kind of wondering, like, Jamila, do you know, do you know who this... Okay. Yeah. So I don't know, should I do like the whole rundown on him? So you did the research. What did you, what did you hear about him? I, honestly, I ended up just like watching quick interviews and watching a lot of video footage of him. Uh-huh. And, but, so I didn't actually get uh, to spend time in getting a sense of like where he's coming from and is there a scene that he's part of that I know nothing about the whole thing or if, if he's just him. Yeah, I think know? there very much is a scene. And that was one of the things that was super exciting to me to hear about. He is he's a young guy. He has been very involved in activism and queer issues around Flint and around, um, and around Detroit. And there seems to be a hip-hop scene that he is um, very much part of that is also very queer. And so there are people that he is touring with, but also people that he's collaborating with and various things. And he has some connection with Lizzo, who had a big hit this past year. <laughs> I don't know if people know that song. But... Uh, what I heard from the interview with him was like he was talking about having people of all different sizes on the on the stage with him. He was talking about pulling outfits together from thrift stores and there 's a bunch of stuff that 's about like him and who he is as an artist and an activist and what and the way in which he engages with that but then there 's also like the song itself, which I just find to be like killer and it's got so much going on in it and one of the things that I like about it and we were talking about it earlier is like the horn thing you know it, it has like horns like you know oh bondage up yours has horns like that like when it hits to that you know that it's like we're never satisfied and then there's that horn drop that is in there that is so amazing and driving the rhythm it's like I love that and I love the way that it goes from being very, very dense and driving to having a lot of space in it. And his 
flexibility in his voice and you know the the speed of his rapping but then also like the way that it also ends up with that kind of crazy trailing off version of it it's like we're never satisfied um that in a way is kind of like the life on the far side looking kind of good there that that sort of again kind of plaintive going off into the distance there and again the lyric like you know if i can be me then you can be yourself and that um now i'm going to get a little verklempt here um that kind of so i came across this on this on this podcast and sort of and then listened to the song and it was like okay at this moment to have a an you know a a queer black person talking about permission like talking about like arguing for people's ability to construct their own identity is i think just so needed and so sort of powerful in the moment and uh this was the one that i knew i was going to bring like uh, automatically and it is like the thing that gets me like hopping around the studio all and it's like the thing that makes me excited about working i feel like what you were just saying is also kind of reflected in the history of the the music that he's creating because early techno and house music was such this like exalted liberatory sound that eventually became the co-opted is the easiest word mm. uh, for you know straight ecstasy parties globally and then in America techno evolved into this EDM thing which was very codified um, mm. and at some point it really seeped into pop music and this for me is almost like a reclaiming of that history of pulling back that sort of yeah. like ecstatic yeah. uh, ri- like rise and fall in yeah. electronic music. I I love that you're saying that because I the I I hate to be a, like a pop curmudgeon but I have been unable let me just say Hillary that fucking song that you picked worst fucking choice what song the champion like the eye the the tiger that Katy Perry song in in a way it epitomizes this trend in in pop music that is as it has pulled stuff out of EDM that has all been like tonight's the night you're gonna go out it's your night it's incredible this is amazing here you go you're the best it's fantastic nothing's wrong here you go you get to the club everybody's gorgeous you look great blah 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 Blah! like and then and then the drop and it is this stupid triumphant you have no problems this is your passion now you're living your drive this is the truth of you that is like the, the, it is the worst version of that bullshit and, and it's true it's like that is the antithesis of what House was but also yes like he complicates all of that you know there is like a drop but it is not about like oh here you are at last in the club and you're so great no it's like you know things are kind of fucked up you know it's like we're never satisfied and, and that yeah, I think that's really apt, what you said, because we've been on this sort of trajectory in pop music that drives me nuts. It's all about, 
like triumph of the will or triumph of the outfit. No, I mean, it's, it, it strikes me as also being like sort of the, that is similar, mirrors the worst of 80s pop music. The, the, the sort of like uh, the, the biggest shoulders, the biggest hair, mm. the biggest attitude, the highest pile of cocaine. I feel like that's kind of yes. exactly what's happening with Black Eyed Peas and Kesha and that sort of thing. Yeah, and it's too bad. I mean, I think that there are people, I think there are interesting pop people at times, but I, but I just feel like that trope of songwriting right now, that build to the drop is like tied to this really irritating idea. And so uh, another sort of weird little digression, which is that, and I guess maybe this is all sort of pointing to that, I'm really down on passion. And here's like a weird... Hmm. Way or, not the Sondheim musical, which is fabulous, but, um, but um, in my line of work, I review many applications and I read many artist statements. I run a graduate program. I read a lot of people who are writing to be admitted to the graduate program. There is this bizarre rhetorical trope where people tell you or tell me that photography is their passion. It is the thing they were meant to do. Often it's tied in our applications to what I call the primal camera moment. Somebody will go like, when I was six years old, my insert family member here, usually male, um, put a camera in my hand and I have never put it down ever since. Photography is my passion and it's the way that I make my way through the world. And to me, we've had this paucity for understanding what it means to be an artist and why you should be an artist in favor of this notion of destiny. Like, I'm destined to be an artist. It is the, it is my, the one sole governing passion in my life. It's the American Idol like thing. Like, this is my time. This is my moment. Like, this is my passion. I will not be denied, you know? And, if, and as an educator, I'm like, well, if this is your passion and you're destined to do it, I don't have anything I can do for you. You're going to do it anyway. But also, please don't turn my application process into a chamber of lies. I don't believe that you never put down a camera from age six. You had to eat sometimes. You had to sleep. You know? So it's like those... That arguing for why you should be allowed to do something because it's your destiny to do it seems the antithesis to me of what being an artist is, which is like bearing a witness to the complexity of your momentary experience and trying to make something in response to that. Um, I don't know how I got onto that, but... It doesn't matter. That was great. <laughs> well, I mean, you're saying something that on the face of it, it seems so cynical, but it's actually really beautiful and important. I, I, I mean, I, I do feel like, yeah, it, it is the most powerful thing that we can do for each other is to, you know, give each other permission to be imperfect and to play with those imperfections in each other's presence. And so I think like each one of these songs in some way to me is a evokes a moment of that or or a, a sort of vision of that 
And so I get really irritated when the idea is like, no, art is about perfection and already being finished. You know? Yeah. So there's a, there's a warning shot to anybody who's writing an application <laughs> to my program. Yeah. I will not be impressed by your passion. <laughs> um, just really quick, how are we doing for time? That would be like the magic place to end, but if we've got lots of time... Okay. All right. So we go from there, Nailin. Well, I'm going to grill you, Mark, because I, so you got these three songs in the, in the mail. Yeah. And so, you know, you were saying like, well, I didn't have an affinity for these things. And well, x-ray specs, like, like for me, that vocal is as good as music gets. Mm -hmm. So that's. I have no questions about yeah, that yeah. one. Musicals, I can't. I have a hard time connecting to. Mm -hmm. um, and something I was saying to you before the mics got turned on is right. that I, I tend to find that if there's music I don't like, if only someone who's really passionate about it explains <laughs> it to me in earnest, I can usually be converted. Uh, I'm, I'm, I can be a pushover about about issues of taste. Right. Um, so, what do you think about the what do you think about the Tunde now in the in the wake of that? Um, you talking about it genuinely had an effect on me because when I was first confronted with it, honestly, what I was mostly hearing being an electronic musician was production and mm. exactly what we're talking about, these, these EDM techniques that I'm really sick of. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like the... I guess we'll call it verse, is really interesting. He's got a... He, technically, he's amazing, and technically, the production on this track mm -hmm. is amazing. And the chorus, the horns part, is really beautiful and forceful, but there's that sort of pre-drop ramp mm -hmm. that, to my mind, is incredibly cliched. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I, I, I have a hard time getting past that sort of uh, very obvious, manipulative t uh, EDM production technique, mm -hmm. you know, where it drops down and it gets unbearably earnest. Mm -hmm. But I will say, outside of those moments yeah, yeah. in this song, again, he's, you know, for him to be able to deliver with that speed and precision, he's doing like this ungodly amount of math in his head while he's delivering something um, so emotionally complicated, which that gesture for me is another like, that's as good as it gets. If mm -hmm. someone can do something that is in some ways has a complication and attention like that. I find that really compelling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think um, I, could, I couldn't get to I couldn't get to the lyrics though. So that was that was a thing that I, I'm glad you brought. Well, up a good thing is to, I couldn't a, really a good thing is to them. like watch the video because the video actually like prints out the lyrics over over everything. So you get pretty much everything that he's saying. What there's one lyric that's in there that's like change like. Every day, don't stay the same. You know, it's so there's there is a thing about like changing and things being fluid. And um, but the thing that struck me this time around is that he does like the trick of leading to the drop at that last thing. Like he does, like there is that like undertone that is rising in pitch. That look that seems like it's going to lead to the drop. That's like the ah, baby, my heart is full. You know, and, um, but it but it does. But but it's that last time around, and it's the, where it's most prominent in the production. Yeah. But it's but it doesn't happen, right? You know, it's the fake out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Also, he's gorgeous. So. 
there's and there you go. <laughs> there is there is my there is like my like fanboying about <laughs> about him. We'll make sure this podcast makes its way to him. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that is that's the way that I flirt. Right? If I'm interested in you, I like listen to your music for 6 months, record a podcast about you <laughs> and hope that eventually it reaches your ears. <laughs> This is not a, te- a pickup technique that works in bars. You need grinder on your phone. <laughs> oh. It's way more effective than no. that. No, 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 no. Um. No, I do not need grinder. <laughs> shall we? Shall we play Q and A? Yeah. So thank you both. Um, we have some time for Q and A. And for those of you who don't know, we have been live streaming this on Facebook. And as a result, Mark, I've actually been having quite a conversation with your wife. During this whole time, like who now? So that first song will be a big part of your life moving forward. Uh, Just so you know, she her reaction was much like Nayland's reaction to it, rather uh, than yours. So just thought thanks, I would I would share that with you. <laughs> yeah. So um, do we have any questions, uh, comments? Yeah, I'll just say, see, that is how S&M works, as you enlist somebody else to do the torturing of you. Oh, bondage. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, this is a question I was thinking about from the beginning, and maybe it touches off a little bit with with Mark, since I've known him for quite some time and see him progress as an artist. But uh, I'm interested in hearing you, and maybe both of you respond to this question, is... I find, um, as, as an artist myself, I find myself really strongly connecting with music a lot more than visual art, honestly. And I find myself really wrapped up in how communal and shared the experience of music is. And I find um, uh, frustrating the, the distance between uh, visual arts practice and the cultures that music creates and scenes that surround it and uh, places where music is experienced. And, um, I just want to hear a little bit about how you relate to the contradiction of being someone who uh, makes objects um, versus uh, a music which is so much uh, is distributed in, in multiples and, and has many different uh, iterations and you know people bring it into their body and dance with it and uh, mm. you know create meanings beyond much in a in a very much embodied way. So yeah, I'm just interested in that. Go ahead, Mark. Well, I mean, I, I met you in grad school, and as you know, I dropped out of a graduate program to join a band. Like, I, I stopped being a visual artist and bought a synthesizer and never looked back. So well. That's why I'm a great teacher. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, you know what? I, I honestly don't know. I'd love to hear Nayland's take on this, because there really is this thing where, like, so much of our consciousness around art, it, like music really dominates so much of the discussion and it informs so much visual art. I mean, it's definitely a two-way conversation, but we really still are mm. in this place where, I mean, music might be being edged out, you know, vi- maybe video games is like kicking it off a cliff and the fact that nobody, c- you know, you can, you can be a video game designer and make a living, but the number of musicians that are making a living making music on planet Earth right now is like exponentially declining. Mm-hmm. So maybe music's time as this, as the force that has been, is really, really ending. Yeah. Um, I guess I would say that there's 
I think that we're socialized, and one of the reasons why I would do that assignment using using pop records is that we're socialized to feel okay about our opinions about pop music in a way that we're not socialized to feel okay about our opinions about contemporary art. So it's it, it like as professionals in the field, we have particular ideas about the way that someone's proceeding with their work or about a particular show, about how something's made, whatever. Um, but that's very different than someone like hearing some song on the radio and going like, oh, that song sucks. Like, ugh, I do not want to have to hear like sports again. You know? Um, just pluck something Huey out Lewis? of my head. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Not, I mean, hack. I, yeah. There are so many things that I could go off about that. Anyway, um, but people, so we're socialized to be able to say like, oh, I love this or I hate this when we're talking about music in a way that if we were to do that about visual art, there's a whole class implication that it's like we're not allowed to pass those kinds of judgments. We have to pass intellectual judgments. And I think that's the thing that creates the distance more than the medium you know, that, that it's more, people don't trust their own opinions about contemporary art in the way that they feel comfortable in their own opinions about popular music. So there's, I think that that's the thing that's operative in it for a lot. I mean, I, you know, I was in a band in college and it's, there are periods of time where people, where I felt like, okay, that was kind of great to like work on that, or you know. Or, but uh, for me, what's always come back around as a kind of effective way of engaging with these complex feelings is externalizing them in an object, um, more so than more so than anything else. So I feel like I'm kind of bound to it as much as I I think about music and and kind of love it and make use of it, it's objects are the thing that actually work for me. Hey, do we have any other questions? Hi. Um, so since we were uh, talking about um, pop music so much um, and Katy Perry, uh, one thought I had is there's, you know, there's this other tendency within um, popular music right now towards this kind of incredible emptiness. Like, I don't know if you know... Um, I'm on one by Drake it was a big hit like four years ago or something like that. But when that song came out, I was I was honestly surprised that anybody could feel those emotions and not commit suicide. And uh, and this is something that you know the recently deceased Mark Fisher wrote about uh, with respect to artists like uh, Drake and others. You know where it kind of shows that in capitalism, even the rich aren't happy. Uh, and I was just wondering if you had any any thoughts about that. Uh, tendency in popular music? Well, I think I mean, another big use, I, I guess, of popular music is luscious suffering. You know, I mean, that's and certainly that is you know, that trajectory goes like all the way through opera, through you know, the Smiths, through like, you know, um, any number of other things and that, I feel, is like an adequate use to which it'll be put. 
I guess I have less of a problem with people using songs as like a vehicle for pouring their own kind of emotion into it than I do this sort of pumped up triumphalism, you know? So it's like, I don't, it's not like I have like a big set of, it's not like I'm deeply ready to like empathize with Drake, you know? (laughs) It's like, he can hug his money at night and he'll, you know, that'll keep him a little warmer. Um, But I think that that's also always been sort of a vehicle for it. Like there is stuff that I just use as a scaffolding for my need to cry, you know, certain songs that are just associated with particular moments in my life. And, you know, Jane Seabury's Love is Everything, which for me associates to a time when uh, uh, someone who had been a partner of mine died. And I, and I have like this emotional moment with this song, like every time I put it on. So that to me seems like a genuine use. Like that's like, that's like a great thing to use it for. But maybe there's something else, or there's something else that I'm thinking of in what you're saying, and again, this is a sort of a tangent, but I watched season two of BoJack Horseman and season two of Unreal, and I got done with them, and I was like, okay, both of these shows are asking me to have moments of empathy for people, for like successful Hollywood people who, because they are leading such morally compromised lives and because they, for whatever reason, because of their emotional damage, they are incapable of empathy themselves. And as a viewer, I'm supposed to find that somehow poignant. And that, and that I had this moment of like, okay, no, I'm getting off the bus. Like, I'd, like, this is not deep writing for me, Hollywood. You telling me how tough your life is making popular entertainment and receiving remuneration for it because it means that you're morally compromised. It's like, no, just do the right thing. If you know the right thing is there, do it. Don't, like, make me feel empathy for you for your inability to do it. You know, that just seems like coy and irritating to me. So maybe that's sort of the, the sense of like, yeah, okay, we're supposed to empathize with billionaires now, but that's, uh, you know, all right, great, tough for them. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's lonely at the top. <laughs> Any other questions? Oh. I was interested to hear that in, um, I guess it was a class that you were in, that you would select the number one hit in America and play for the class, and I guess the students would respond to that. And um, I'm curious, one thing that I was thinking when you said that was that contemporary art or photography doesn't really have an equivalent of number one hit in America that sweeps the nation and that you'll hear playing on the radio and that you'll hear playing, unless uh, you think that it does, which I'd be interested to hear about. But um, And that might be in part because of this gatekeepers, whether academic or commercial, that contemporary art, that the contemporary art hierarchy kind of has included there. And I'd be curious if you could kind of uh, discuss that. Are there any analogs between um, a contemporary art piece that might have, even, even the word pop art has 
mm-hmm. a very different connotation than popular music. And mm-hmm. I'd just be kind of curious to hear you talk about that a little bit. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, one thing that I'll clarify, it's, um, it wasn't just that I would play the song. Right? In fact, I wouldn't play the song to the students. I, I, each student got a copy, like got the object. So, the, so they had to make a piece based on the object that they were given, which was either the single, the physical single or the cassette single. I'll Remember by Madonna. Oh, really? Yours was all, I don't yeah. remember. Um, Cliff Hanks got um, uh, Cold Hearted Snake from... Uh, That's so much better. <laughs> <laughs> he did a good job with it, Paula. Anyway, yeah, I mean, there isn't... There isn't a number one art piece in America because people don't care about visual art enough to be able to muster that kind of an opinion about it. But it seems one thing that you did say is that I think the gatekeeper aspect is the same. I I think there's still a filtration of capitalism between the consumer and the makers. Um, I mean, they, they function differently in both cases, but I think there's still the gatekeepers in both both fields, no? Yeah. It's just such a different distribution system and the way that people... You have to go to art. Mm -hmm. It does not come to you in the way that music comes to you. You're not sitting in your laundromat and suddenly people are like broadcasting stills from the Jason Road show. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Um, It's just like... It's not like that, you know? Although that would be interesting. I, maybe I shouldn't give them any ideas. <laughs> so we have uh, time for one more question. Yeah. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, I got one of those singles, too. Oh! <laughs> of course, I don't remember what it was. Um, but what struck me um, from the way that you talked about a lot of the older music was that you referred to the songs as singles or the way that you pick things out as singles. And um, so thinking about songs as individual pieces or individual arcs, but of course there's also the album, the arc of the album or the story of the album, which is kind of, you know, the art practice of the musician, right? Like thinking about how the album works and maybe my old school way of like A-side, B-side. And then you talked about, you know, converting all your music to iTunes, you know, until they took it away. (laughs) Right? Yeah, there was a, in transferring between hard drives, there was a filing problem. Anyway. But that you were were listening to your music on shuffle, right? So that, again, is like singles. Um, So thinking about that, in reference to the the white album, black album piece that you did, which is a sort of shuffling of albums. I was just curious, like, how you listen to music now? Like, what are the different devices that you have in your studio? Mm -hmm. And um, how do you think of the song versus the album? I guess it goes back and forth. I mean, generally I'm listening to it on basically what is the equivalent of a Walkman these days, my phone you know, which I will treat as a Walkman and load up a bunch of stuff on it and just listen to it with headphones. So there's, um, there are times when I will put an entire album on there and there are like certain 
albums that I want to hear the whole album. It's like I, I want to, it's like I want to hear all of Tupelo Honey, right? It's like I don't, I mean, I love individual songs on that record, and there are other songs that are like completely horrible, but I kind of love it as a full arc of an album, right? Or, um, I'm trying to think of what else. I mean, yeah. The, so that's like just out of the, like something that I went through a phase with about a year ago. It's like I was listening to Tupelo Honey all the time. And then there'll just be other things where there's like a song that I want to hear, you know? So it, it kind of goes back and forth. The thing that is, that I haven't really been able to connect with, and I think this is a generational thing, is like the sort of Spotify. We were talking about this earlier on. The thing that I don't like about current music streaming services is the same problem that I have with most online information retrieval, which is that it is based... It does not understand the notion of contrast, right? The algorithms are built to emphasize similarity, and we see that like in the way that they surface political news, in the same way that they surface like you might like this person, or in the same way that they in the same way that they tell you like oh if you read this book you'll like this book. It's all based on the idea that what you want is more of what you've got, and that moment it's like we all have that experience right of like making a mixtape, and there's that great moment of like contrast and like putting something else in that's like oh wait i didn't expect i didn't expect to need this right now but i really do and that to me i think is something that's very much about being an artist as well is sort of understanding that it's not just about making 10 of the same thing and putting them all next to each other at least for me it's not you know, it's it's about, like, how do you pr- introduce variety and how do you make things different? Right. Well, thank you, Mark and Nayland, for speaking with us tonight. Thank you, guys. Thanks for coming. Thank, thank you, you Volume thank, Robert. I just want to say thanks again for setting this up. It's, it is super moving to me. And it is... And it's like, what a... What a treat to get to have like thinking people in your life in an ongoing way. So thank both of you guys and thank all of you for coming out. It's like, this is the real stuff and it's so great to be able to be around you all. You too. Thank you, Nalan. All right, so I also want to thank again Oscar and everybody at the ICA for putting this together. It's a fantastic night and to thank, thanks to all of you for coming. Um, yeah, and please, yeah. please support the ICA, which is already the coolest museum because yeah. of what Jamil is doing uh, and uh, bringing. We'll Nailin see you out. in 2019. <laughs> Come and be weird. Dress up, please. <laughs> All right, thank you. Good night. <laughs>